This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwalt, and this is Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Before we get started, I want to tell you about our email newsletter. If you're interested in receiving weekly emails with resources from the latest episodes, along with giveaways, special events, and bonus episodes, you can subscribe in the show notes below or at innovatingabrightfuture.com. This week's episode, we get to dive into an all-new form of renewable energy that we haven't looked at yet. I have the privilege of talking to Matt Udenberg from Alterock Energy about basically what geothermal is, where it comes from, and how we can use it. I was pretty much entirely new to this topic, so I hope you learn as much as I did. Please welcome Mr. Matt Udenberg, the VP of Operation at Alterock Energy. First of all, thank you, Matt, for being here. And Alterock is an American company currently working in the field of geosciences. Now, when I say geosciences, I mean things like very, very deep underground operations, like kilometers underground, specifically sites for geothermal energy plants and digging of those wells, drilling wells. This is a field that I'm pretty new to, I don't know much about, so I'm hoping that you can actually teach me a little bit about it. Yeah, great. Well, what can you tell me about like the vision of Alterock and some of the technologies that you guys are using? So Alterock has been around for about 12 to 13 years. And I actually started the geothermal industry around 12, 13 years ago, but I joined Alterock originally about eight years ago. The goal of Alterock is basically to use new stimulation techniques, which are ways of increasing permeability in the subsurface. And so permeability is basically the ability for water to move through rock. Alterock is focused on what's called hydro shearing, which is you apply pressure to rock to basically enhance the permeability of existing fractures in the rock. And that allows you to produce more water. But that's essentially what Alterock does. It it develops technology to enhance production of geothermal systems. I've heard a lot of people who are maybe even a little bit skeptical about renewable energy. One thing that they can usually agree on is that geothermal could be a path forward because oil and gas is very experienced in some of the same ways. So if we can transition from oil and gas, which has had years of development in their technologies and their processes into geothermal, and then instead of getting oil and gas out of the ground, we're getting hot steam, then that creates a renewable resource from something that wasn't before. Exactly. It's maybe a little more nuanced than that. Um, So the geothermal industry is maybe older than most people realize. I think specifically what can be transferred over are these newer technologies that were developed for frack gas and things like that. There's been a lot of new technologies that have been developed that geothermal can use. But as far as technology maturity, the geothermal industry is its nearly as old as the oil industry. So it's been around since the beginning of the 1900s. So 1904, 
I'd say is the official start of the geothermal power industry. I, I can go into that more detail if you want. Sure. Like, just where did why did it start mostly? Like, who who thought of geo using geothermal energy? So it's this guy. I believe his name is Prince Conti. He was a royalty in northern Italy, and his family owned a boric acid mine, and it produced quite a bit of hot water at the time. People were thinking about producing electricity. A decade or two before, Thomas Edison was talking about localized production of electricity for lighting. So he set up a pilot plant that did some lighting in 1904. I think it was five, six bulbs, nothing that big. But then the official geothermal power plant was built in, I believe, 1913. And this is all in Lardarello, Italy. There's a lot of volcanism out there, and that's what the mine was um, utilizing is the off-gassing from the volcanoes there. He was using the heat there to produce electricity. And interestingly, like that is one of the larger uh, geothermal productions in Italy still today. So 100 years later, or over 100 years later. Wow, okay. I want to get into now, you mentioned like the heating and everything like that. Where does the energy actually come from in geothermal? Yeah, that's actually interesting. It goes back to the whole debate about how old the Earth is. And so they originally thought, you know, it was on the order of tens of thousands of years. Um, and that's because the cooling to conduction. Originally, what the idea was is there's the heat of formation of the Earth. And so we'll break it up into two parts and I'll explain it later. Part of the heat of the coming from the Earth towards the surface is due to the, the heat of formation. So when the supernova, our sun was much bigger at one point, and it exploded in a supernova. That cooling of the bits of star uh, is what formed our planets. So there were little pieces of planetary bodies moving around. Earth was one of those larger pieces, and you know the current theory is that there was a larger body that smacked into the Earth, and they moved together. But some of the melt from that collision formed the moon. So that's the current theory right now. But a lot of heat was generated in that process, and what happened was through density differentiation. So this means basically the heavier elements sink to the middle. The lighter elements, they go towards the surface. It formed what is called the crust. That's where we live. It's all the um, silica material. And that forms an insulating layer over this basic molten hot rock slash molten metal, which is in the core. Basically, the cooling of that core is what causes a lot of the heat flow at the surface so and that is primarily done through conduction and convection so conduction just in case you didn't know is the flow of energy in the form of heat between two masses usually just by contact there's no movement of mass or anything while convection is the heating of movement of liquid or gas so applied to earth's geothermal systems Magma below a lake could heat the ground by conduction. The energy is transferred from magma to the earth below the lake. The remainder of the lake would then be heated by convection. The water near the magma gets hot and then flows around the rest of the lake, interacting with the rest of the water that isn't hot, and slowly the rest of the lake warms up. Originally, they thought that the earth was fairly young because they assumed conduction from the core was happening. And conduction is just heat moving through a medium. But in reality, what's going on is that there's actually convection. So that means magma moving. There's um, liquid metal in the outer core that's moving in a convection cycle. So that brings much more heat to the surface than you would otherwise anticipate. 
So that was one of the first findings. That meant that the Earth was actually much older than they had originally thought. So about 50% of the Earth's heat just comes from the cooling of the core and moving towards the surface. The other part of the heat equation that they had not figured out was radioactive decays. The other 50% comes from radioactive decay. So there is a lot of thorium, potassium, and uranium within the Earth. A lot of those are radioactive, and so they're decaying and actually giving off energy. Not only is the Earth cooling from that original heat of formation, but it's also generating its own heat through radioactive decay in the core and the mantle, as well as part of the, the crust. So that's where all that heat is coming from in geothermal. That's where the energy comes from in geothermal electricity production. But how do we turn heat into electricity? We turn heat into electricity using fairly conventional means. So the most common power conversion system is a steam turbine. It's one of the first devices that was used to generate electricity. Um, So geothermal exploits that technology as well. But rather than having a coal plant which burns coal in order to boil water, a geothermal system basically produces hot water that's under pressure and then flashes it at the surface. They expose it to lower pressure and the water will turn to steam. And then that steam is used to generate electricity. In some other cases, they use a technology called binary, uh, a binary turbine. And that's where you use hot water through a heat exchanger. Just put hot water in a coiled tube, kind of, um, actually, it's usually straight tubes. And you use it to heat up this other substance, usually a refrigerant. And that has much lower boiling. And so that you can basically create a high-pressure vapor to go through a refrigerant turbine. And that allows you to exploit lower temperature resources. So normally, it's either one of the two. It's either a steam turbine or a binary turbine. When we're doing or when we're operating these geothermal plants, are we piping the water down into the ground to get heated by all that moving molten metal and molten ore or haha or or are we extracting the steam and water actually straight from the ground? How does that part of it work? Where do we actually get this the hot water from? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. And a lot of the older sites they are just producing hot water from the ground that is already there. And that is often in magmatic settings. Magmatic just means involving magma, melted rock and metal, all the stuff that we associate with a volcano. There are three kinds of resources. There's a steam resource, which is normally located right under a magmatic body. And you can see that in places like Indonesia, California, places where there's high heat flow from magma. And then there's the secondary resources, which can be in extensional zones, which are like rift zones that you see, such as Nevada or East Africa. Quick aside here, what the heck is a rift zone? That's exactly what I thought when I heard that. After some very good Google skills, I have determined that a rift zone is basically an unstable area around a geothermal event site. So it's where there's cracks around a steam vent or something, providing access to energy where it would be difficult to access otherwise. And then you have the lower temperature stuff, which is also associated with rift zones, but it can be associated with other places as well. And that's more binary turbines. So that's lower temperature, but still hot water. In all cases, you probably will be producing that water directly 
But then in most cases, afterwards, you will be injecting that water into the same reservoir. And you do that to maintain pressure in the reservoir. You are cycling water through the system, but you are also producing native water as well. So that's a good thing from what I hear because geothermal plants aren't known for being mobile, I wouldn't say. So you can reuse the same site by pumping water in and then re-extracting it. Is that right? That's right. And sometimes you do lose water to evaporation. How they get around that is they use basically treated sewage water to supplement the water that they need. So that, that is one method you can use to actually either maintain or enhance production of a geothermal system. Okay. And then they just add it in so that the, the amount of water stays the same. Is that the point of that? Yeah, basically. I mentioned this in an earlier episode of season one. I don't remember which episode it was, but I mentioned that in comparison to renewables, using a steam turbine from something like coal, having to extract it and then burn it, turn water into steam. There's a lot of steps along the way that energy can be lost. So my question is, does that apply at all to geothermal energy? Like how efficient is geothermal energy? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's, a, it's also a nuanced question. It depends on what you're developing. And most importantly, it depends on the energy density of your fluid. So how much energy contains per kilogram of fluid, whatever that is, it could be water or something else. The binary turbines, which tend to be lower energy density, they're somewhere in the range, it's pretty low of six to, let's say, 12 to 13%. And then what we call first law efficiency, so just the heat coming out of the ground, how much of that is converted into electricity. So, and then first law efficiency for steam turbines is on the order of 13 to 25%, somewhere in that range. And that's also dependent on the type of steam. So there's different types of steam. Uh, there's a two-phase steam, which means there's vapor and water within the steam mass. And then there's superheated steam, which is all vapor. From there, there's different energy densities in those two types of steam. And so depending on what kind of steam you have, you can get anywhere from 13 to 25% currently what we're seeing in the in the world. If we move to these higher temperature regimes, we might be able to get higher efficiencies, but that remains to be seen. Okay. Well, to me, 13 to 25% seems a little low, but what does that mean for actually like producing energy? Is it a low production or are we pushing so much through the system that it's still generating a decent amount of energy? So it is low in comparison to, let's say, a natural gas or coal-fired turbine. And, and the reason why is, in those cases, they are using what is called superheated steam, which is all vapor. It's heated to fairly high temperatures. That's pretty hard to do in a natural system, such as the geothermal system. And so there are some built-in deficiencies, I guess, as far as efficiency is concerned with geothermal. But you can produce a lot of fluid from these systems. And there's some advantages as well, which is you don't need fuel, right? And you don't have the same kind of pollution. Geothermal can remain economic compared to these technologies by just producing more fluid. So it, it is possible to run more water through one of these systems than it is like a typical boiler, let's say. Okay, yeah. And that, that's a very important point too. The economics of geothermal 
has that one very distinct advantage that it doesn't need fuel. From what I understand, at least, basically once you get the thing built, and as long as you maintain it and make sure it doesn't break, you really don't have to put a whole lot more into it. Whereas a coal or natural gas plant, you're always looking for more fuel. You're always looking for more manpower to extract that fuel, transport that fuel, and then manage that fuel once you actually get it there when you burn it. That's correct. Yeah, once you have the well drilled, you just produce it. Um, there is some maintenance involved, but as you point out, it's there's much less involved than mining new coal and transporting it. You mentioned, to my surprise, that geothermal is over 100 years old. So you also said that it was quite mature. Is there still room for this technology to grow and improve and get better? Or is it kind of reached its peak, would you say? I believe currently that geothermal is undergoing basically a new revolution of sorts. In the 80s and early 90s, we saw... Um, a big proliferation of geothermal power plants, and that had to do with new exploration and drilling technologies developed in the oil and gas industry at the time. And actually, uh, that initial push of geothermal was done by oil and gas. So the Arcos, Texacos, and Chevrons of the world were building geothermal power plants. So it was just an interesting time, and so we saw a lot more of that at that point. The second wave of geothermal was lower temperature resources. And these are the binary turbines that we're talking about. And that happened, you know, in the 2000s, early 2000s and going on today. So the first wave, 80s and 90s, and then the second wave is kind of where we are right now. But what we're seeing now, and I think this is going to be the third wave and maybe the thing that kind of tips it over as far as scaling it up, is basically the building out of EGS systems, which are engineered geothermal systems. And these are basically using modern oil and gas techniques, such as fracking, uh, but not fracking exactly, but using the same tools that they use to enhance permeability in these reservoirs and create reservoirs at depth wherever you want. So you create a geothermal reservoir in any location and you design it to be economic from the very beginning. So you design all the different aspects of it. Uh, you model it ahead of time so you know what it's going to do in the next 20, 30 years. And then you sell that and then you build it out. Uh, so every aspect of it is basically designed. There's definitely some risk still involved in this, but a lot of the um, technologies you needed to de-risk this kind of idea is is out there today. And so you have companies like Fervo, Sage Geosystems, and a few others who are using this EGS concept to build out these new geothermal power plants. Today, most of this EGS idea is centered around lower temperature resources, so they'll be using binary turbines. But I think in the future, and this is what Alterock is looking at doing, is using these same techniques, but at much higher temperatures and depths. And that will be used to generate steam, or in some cases, supercritical water. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to get much higher efficiencies as we were talking about. And it also allows you to produce way more power per well. I thought I should mention what supercritical water is. Supercritical water, or supercritical fluid in general, is when you heat something up to what would be its boiling point, but you put it under enough pressure that it doesn't actually boil. And you keep doing that, heating and pressurizing, until it cannot physically be compressed anymore and becomes supercritical. At this point, it's no longer a liquid and it isn't a gas, looks more like a vapor, 
a really, really hot vapor that can be easily manipulated and moved quickly, which is why it can be advantageous for the geothermal industry. It sounds like to me there's still massive improvements going on in a bunch of different ways, and it's still finding ways to improve and get better and get more economical and efficient, which is always good because we want something that can continue to improve and not something that kind of grows stagnant, right? Correct. And uh, where are you located again? Alberta. Alberta. Yes. Yeah. So I believe actually one of the uh, first truly successful EGS projects is in Alberta. It's the uh, DEEP project. Probably mispronouncing her name, but uh, I think believe it's Kristen Marcia. She's head of the DEEP uh, project in Alberta. And they've actually used this concept of EGS creating fractures at depth and designed a system and then are producing energy. They're the first real, I think, success of this idea. Oh, very interesting. I had no idea that that even existed. So what does it take for these things to actually succeed? You mentioned like it needs to be modeled and engineered. Geography seems to me like it would be an important piece of this. I mean, you need hot water and investment. Like what is the cost of it for resources and money and manpower? What does it take to get this thing up and running? Much of the uh, power production community, we think of things in marginal cost, cost per unit of production. In this case, it would be megawatt hours or kilowatt hours, depending on what you are looking at. And so that, that would be the LCOE. That's the total cost. In the episode with Duncan Lucas from the first season, I talked about what exactly an LCOE is. Since even I've forgotten since then, you probably have too. So here's a quick refresher. LCOE is basically the calculation of cost per kilowatt hour of energy produced. It takes into account the cost to build the system and the cost to maintain the system, and then divides that total cost by the total amount of energy that the system will produce over its lifetime. With completely made-up numbers, a solar plant that costs $100,000 to build and which will produce 100 kilowatt hours, the LCOE would be $1,000 per kilowatt hour which is ludicrously high, but it's made up numbers, it doesn't matter. LCOE is typically the best way to compare power systems across genres because you can easily compare the LCOE of, say, a coal plant to that of a solar plant or geothermal facility. The other metric that we use is the installed cost. So how much does it take to install a certain amount of what is called capacity, so the ability for the power plant to produce a unit of power? Let's start with capacity. Power plant is in the range of $1,500 to $3,000 per installed kilowatt. It's kind of like uh, the range. Um, that depends on many factors. Is it a steam turbine and how big is it? Or is it a binary turbine? How big is it? And then as far as the total production, the low on the lower end, geothermal can produce power at around in the low 40s. So let's say $42, $43 a megawatt hour in such places like Iceland. And on the higher end, you have $100 to $110 per megawatt hour in some of these Western states. And those are typically binary turbines. Do you have an idea of what that is in kilowatt hours, like dollars per kilowatt hour or cents per kilowatt hour? Yeah, sorry. So that, that would equate to four cents a kilowatt hour, places such as Iceland, and then some of these other projects in the West that are maybe more remote, but have the market conditions are right, 10 cents or 11 cents dollars per kilowatt hour. So that's kind of the range that you're looking at as far as geothermal projects. I mean, it can go higher in some cases. 
if you're in truly remote locations where electricity is really expensive. But those, those sites are pretty small, typically, because the market is pretty small. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a decent price. Like for how early on it is in this, as you say, the third wave of geothermal compared to numbers I've seen for like coal and oil. These are just what I've seen, but I've seen like six cents per kilowatt hour. So in some cases, it could be lower, right? Lower than oil and gas, I mean. Yes, what we're targeting with these harder resources, and you know, a lot more work is needed in order to um, develop these fully, but. The goalpost, and we think it is technically feasible, is you know on the order between twenty to, or so two cents to five cents a kilo. Uh, that's kind of what we're targeting at the moment. That's a good target to have because that would be exceptionally economic. Really, really good prices for electricity for anyone who doesn't know those kind of metrics. That's a really good price for electricity. Right, that puts us in the range um, at or below natural gas. I will make one distinction here is geothermal is a baseload energy. I don't know if you um, are familiar with that concept, but baseload energy simply means that you run the power plant all the time. So it's always producing power. That's opposed to, let's say, like wind or solar, which are intermittent resources, and they only run anywhere between 10 to, I guess, 40% of the time. On top of only running part of the time, they also run whenever the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, so you can't plan it. So with geothermal, it runs all the time, but when you shut it down, you plan the shutdown. So it's planned and it can run all the time, which is um, an important distinction as far as power sources. Yes, yes, a very important distinction to make. Surprised that neither of us have brought that up so far, but yeah, compared to other renewables, geothermal runs 24-7, which is a problem that some people have with things like solar and wind, and it's a big advantage of something like geothermal. That's right. With geothermal, you won't need batteries good because batteries are incredibly expensive. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of one of the frustrating things that, uh, from my end is, you know, you often get compared to solar and wind, but a better way of phrasing it would be solar wind plus batteries, because that's actually what we're providing. We're providing um, dispatchable power. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about kind of the overall sustainability of geothermal energy, because it's kind of, it's, been compared to the same processes, as you said, of natural gas or oil. So is this something that we're going to use in the energy transition and going forward as we move to sources of energy that are free of carbon? And what does that mean for like the environment around these plants? Is there any damage when you're pumping this water into the ground or fracturing the ground? Or is it pretty safe in that regard? So traditionally, I would say it depends. And the reason why I would say that is different volcanic systems are have different uh, chemical components in their steam. So in some places, there are, it's what's called H2S. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's the rotten egg smell. And that that is um, problematic. However, there are ways of mitigating it. And at places where it does happen, they do mitigate the emissions of those constituents. So this is a well-developed process. In binary turbines in the West, for example, there's basically no environmental impact as far as emissions are concerned. And then in terms of water usage, you're developing water from brines, which are highly salty. So these are not, this is not potable water. So when it says that we are consuming water, it's water that would not be able to be used for any other process. So the impact is actually fairly low. And then geothermal also has one of the least land use requirements. 
geothermal systems can produce about a megawatt per acre to eight acres used. So it's, it's one to eight acres. And in the high end, you can actually go below one acre. The, these are pretty small footprints. Um, for instance, I believe that solar is about 40 times larger on average. Generally speaking, I think that geothermal is on the lower end of environmental impact. As far as CO2 emissions are concerned for the lifetime of the project, um, I believe geothermal projects are in line with solar projects. The best performance, actually, in terms of CO2 emissions over the life of the project are hydro systems, so dams, um, and then wind. I think wind is also second. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned hydro because I was actually going to draw a small comparison there in asking about the upfront investment of the upfront carbon investment, I guess, not necessarily the money, but when you talk about hydro plants, the carbon and steel that needs to go into it produces an incredible amount of CO2 and other pollutants from just the energy needed to create that concrete and steel. So how does that compare with geothermal? You said it's pretty low? I think hydro is actually probably lower than geothermal. It's an interesting thing to wrap your head around, but basically, yes, it does use a lot of cement and a lot of steel, but it produces a huge amount of energy over a very long period of time. So what you have to look at is the CO2 per production. That's what really truly matters is for every unit of electricity that the project will produce over its lifetime, how much of the embedded CO2 is on a per unit basis. And because that allows you to compare it across all technologies. And when you look at it in terms of that metric, Dams do pretty well. And I think geothermal is in line with that, but it's maybe just, just behind dams. And then solar is worse. So I, I think in a lot of cases, because you have to make all the silicon, you have to build out the whole power plant. It takes up a lot of room. So there's a lot of things there that go into that. So even though it does require a lot of uh, CO2 input on the, uh, in the initially, the initial capital outlayer CO2 app, it does produce electricity at large quantities for a very long period of time. And geothermal does the same thing. And just to be clear, levelized carbon cost, I'll call it, I'll make up my own term, levelized carbon yeah. cost is not even comparable to that of an oil or gas rig. It's not even on the same level. Oil and gas is so much higher because they continue to produce it as they're using it, which is different from how solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal work. Right. I mean, so for example, we're drilling a well. We produce, let's say, 10 megawatts from that well over a lifetime. We don't have to do much. But in oil and gas, you know, or coal power plant, not only are you burning coal, which emits CO2, but you also have to mine the coal, which emits CO2, and you have to transport the coal which emits CO2. And it's the same process for natural gas or oil or any of these things is you still have to drill the wells, you still have to transport the gas or the fluid, and then you still have to burn it. So yet you're correct. The lifetime emissions of these projects are much, much higher than any of the renewables. Ultimately, renewables is the way to go when we're looking at total emissions. Even though it does cost carbon to get it up and running, it's still the right way forward. I don't want anyone to misunderstand that and say, well, we can't do that because it is costing this much concrete and steel to make it. Right. And I mean, compare the two. Yeah, it costs a lot of concrete and steel to do fossil fuels. I mean, uh, these are not small projects. When you're taking down an entire mountain to take out some coal, that's not a small thing. That, that requires a lot of tractors, requires a lot of cement and steel. So the idea that these projects require more, I, I, I don't know if that holds up. 
the one argument you can make is maybe that uh, there's economics to this and that the economics for these things are better. It's no longer true. I, you know, wind and solar are definitely affordable and they beat fossil fuels in many markets. The question now is more a question of dispatchability, so being able to handle the intermittency issue going forward. And that's where things such as nuclear or geothermal play a role. We're seeing this develop all over the world. We're seeing all these problems gradually but consistently become more surmountable. We're seeing better solutions, and geothermal is definitely one of those solutions. Well, if you have time, I just have like a couple kind of rapid fire questions i'd like to ask you before you go yeah let's go for it all right it'll be quick don't worry my first question is can geothermal compete with the likes of wind and solar in these increasingly renewable energy fields yes it can it's going to be a combination of policy and technology innovation that's a great lead into my next question which is What's most important for implementing these things, policy, economics, or technology? Policy will play a large role. Uh, there does need to be help in the form of giving value to this dispatchability, as we were talking about earlier. And then on top of that, technology, which allows us to go deeper, allows us to reduce risk of these projects. And that will allow us to better raise money to build these projects out. That one's very variable in its answer. I like asking that question because it's interesting to see what you come up with. First of all, what do you prefer and which do you think is more important, I guess? Research into these fields or the actual implementation, getting it done, getting it built? Oh, yes. I'm a deployment person through and through. The thing is about deployment is you learn so much from deploying. You still need to do research and development during deployment. There's always learning that you can have from deploying. And then once you deploy it, you figure out your supply chain and all this kind of stuff that you maybe don't think about during R&D, which is equally as important as the research itself. Firmly a deployment person. So I just briefly looked through some of the projects that Alterock has worked on, but what would you say is your favorite one? I mean, I, I have to go with Newberry. That was the uh, the crowning achievement, I guess, of Alterock. Uh, it didn't work out as exactly how we wanted, but uh, Newberry, Newberry Caldera is my favorite project. Okay, my last question is, based on your knowledge of the industry, of the energy industry, and the state of kind of climate in general, do you think that we can reduce emissions enough to reach carbon neutrality by 2050? Is that still in reach? It is technically within reach. The technology we need in order to achieve that goal is there. The question is political will and then also public engagement and understanding of the problem and then what is necessary. Because not only will you need the political will in order to get it done, but you're going to need people to actually do all the jobs that it requires. You're going to need people to train up on all the things that we're going to need in order to make that happen. It's a combination of political will, public awareness, and education. Very nice. So it is possible. It will take work, but it is possible. I mean, yes, I think it's technically feasible. We can do it if we put our minds to it. It's, uh, it's a question of, can we get everyone together and start working on it? To be fair, people are working on it now. We just need to do it at a larger scale than we're currently doing it. What a great episode. Now I can talk about geothermal energy without being completely clueless. The biggest thing I got out of this conversation 
was that everything has a job to do. Wind and solar have the best potential to supply power to everyone, batteries will help level out the intermittency, and geothermal plants will have their place as the constant, baseload power that can be relied on 24-7-365. All the links to Alterock will be in the show notes, along with our social media and email newsletter. Follow us and subscribe to the show and the newsletter so that you never miss an episode, because what a terrible tragedy that would be. Also, share the show with one friend, they might enjoy it and love you forever. Take care, stay innovative, I'll see you next week.